The Guardian. Welcome once again to what is now week four on the Savage World Cup Savannah. It was a week rich in plumage and dense in nutrients. A week for us to crowd around screeching as we crack open its ribcage and devour it down to the bone. Former timid pinstripe puppies transformed into a wolf Pakistan, harrying far bigger prey to the ground, while the primacy of South Africa's top dog was challenged by a gold-clad competitor, Glenn Maxwell less flesh predator than a murder robot that could kill you with a single human tear. Sri Lanka's alpha bat showed that age has only made him stronger. Ireland stayed in the tournament by the length of their decorated limbs and a few millimetres of hoof. While in the battle of the big cats, the tigers defeated the lions. Or as I like to say, some cricketers whose nation has long since hunted their mascot to extinction defeated other cricketers whose nation has long since hunted their mascot to extinction. As the Bangladesh tiger stalks its prey, it must overcome a historically poor win-loss ratio and a propensity to mid-innings collapse. To narrate all that and more, it's Jeff Lemon bringing you the Guardian World Cup podcast. I'll be joined later by the godfather of Sri Lankan cricket broadcasting, Roshan Abasinga. And right now in the studio beside me, I'll welcome editor from playup.com and England's scapegoat who is cursing his timing, Jonathan Howcroft, along with my colleague, the noble king of the internet jungle, Russell Jackson. Now, I think this week, before we get into the issue surrounding England, Bangladesh and being knocked out of the World Cup... We should probably make the entry a little bit easier by starting somewhere else and we'll just sort of slowly work our way around to that topic slightly later. So I would like to start, Russell, with the story of Pakistan. And it's a story that makes us look silly because last week we previewed South Africa versus Pakistan by saying, no need to talk about that, South Africa will win. And this week... That was not true. And what an indictment on England that we're starting with something sane and predictable in in Pakistan. Uh, Yeah, they're a transformed side. Like you said, we didn't even want to... We're almost too depressed to preview Pakistan last week and then they've gone all 1992 World Cup on us. You know, I'm not sure whether they're cornered tigers exactly, but they, um, yeah, they've improved a hell of a lot in the space of a week which is which is a good thing about the tournament yeah hopefully we'll leave the tigers out of it because it's going to get far too confusing with all of the animal metaphors although it seems almost every sporting team's mascot is either a tiger or a lion so maybe get a little bit more original um but you know pakistan it was a it was an absolute breakout performance for them i mean they they got a bit of momentum against the united arab emirates earlier in the week where they clocked up sort of 339 looked good batting and, and, and bowled out the UAE, but that was never um, really expected to go any differently. Um, but this game against South Africa, Jonathan, it was, it was magnificent. They were magnificent. Was. They, they, they scraped and, and, and scrimped to get 222, and then they bowled out a side which is supposed to be the strongest batting side in the tournament. Yeah, well, I think the inclusion of Safraz Ahmed is an important one. I think we, there's a this theme running through the World Cup about individual players being totemic for their sides, the way they the way they set the tone, the way they give an impetus and an energy. You look at the way Glenn Maxwell plays for Australia. He's he's a lightning rod, and and Pakistan have lacked that. I think particularly in their batting order, they they they've all been looking at each other to take responsibility. And Misbah is the only one that seems to be prepared to put his hand up. And we know the issues that they've got in the field, particularly behind the stumps with with the delightful Uma Akmal. So to have somebody come in, give them that energy at the top of the order and also hold his catches behind the stumps, it, it, it gave, to me, it seemed like a different Pakistan. And, and Russell, we know that they've got a very, very good pace attack that can complement 
and and put pressure on any batting order, even as one as strong as South Africa's. Yeah, that's right. And I think we sometimes underrate the confidence the side gets from its wicketkeeper, and that's been a notable part of Australia's renaissance in the past 18 to 24 months is you know that mostly when that edge goes through to Brad Haddon that it's not going to be butchered the way that it previously was. So, yeah, you wonder whether that, I mean, whether that has some sort of subtle psychological effect on the whole team when they're in the field that, hey, we're right in this match. You know, balls aren't going down behind the stumps. Um, and I think the, the 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 fast bowlers, as you said, they were sort of unleashed this week. Wako Yunus said, "Really, you know, go for it," and and they did. I mean, the wickets were shared between the three left arm quicks. Uh, you know, nine wickets between them against South Africa, and um, it, it was it was surprising that you know that such a strong batting side would collapse in a way that other sides, that probably inferior sides didn't against Pakistan previously? On the wicket-keeping, I think they really solved two problems there as well. Now, Safraz Ahmed took six catches, I think, behind mm-hmm. the stumps. If you've got a team that's relying on fast bowlers, you need to have a good wicket-keeper. You know, that's just obvious. But, uh, you know, one of my favourite Pakistan players of the past was Mohan Khan, the, the keeper. But the last sort of, it seems like the last decade, there's always been an Akmal behind the stumps and there have always been catches going to turf. Suddenly, Safraz comes in, takes six catches. If Umar Akmal had been keeping, probably one or two of those would have been dropped and South Africa would probably have chased down the target. Now, that's one thing that they've solved, but... They've also had Safraz come in and open the batting where Nasir Jamshed's been in horrific form. And Safraz is, I would have thought, one of the best batsmen in that squad, even as a batsman alone. Now, we saw him make a magnificent century against Australia in a test match last October uh, that I was commentating he made 109 of 105 balls there and you know a lot of keepers try to bat like Adam Gilchrist since Adam Gilchrist reinvented the form that was probably the first innings I've seen since Gilchrist where I thought someone's really pulled that off he came out with the the opposition on the mat and just went to town and you know where Eunice Khan had been batting very very slowly and Azhar Ali very slowly for what seemed like days suddenly Safras came in and iced it and he came in in this match opened the innings was nearly made a half century was run out going for that 50th run but uh, he he set the tone and and got them confident at the top of that innings and I think that made a huge difference. And that's what modern 50 over cricket looks like. It, it relies on somebody or, or the entire top order really maintaining that level of aggression. You can't just go out there and I, I, I hate to bring everything back to England today but it's, it's inevitable. You look at the way Ian Bell bats, for example. He gets 20 or 30 quickly, comfortably think, right, bed and breakfast and he doesn't go on to, to, to fulfil the job. And the England batsmen that come in afterwards then are in a, a consistent rebuilding phase. You look at how Pakistan approached, approached their innings. You look at, um, at Bangladesh. Um, uh, who did they play before England? Uh, Scotland, Scotland, when British. they played Scotland. They, each batsman that came in just successively took, took the bat on, ran with it, maintained a high scoring rate, and maintain that level of intensity. And when you have somebody like like Ahmed to set that off at the top, then it, you know. And they looked, uh, in saying that they looked more comfortable in the field with him out there, they also looked a better and more stable batting side in a way when he was out there. And it's not the brainless hitting that we've seen from Pakistan at times in this tournament where guys have, you know, uh, there's been a lot of loose shots in the in those early losses. Um, 
you know, they were the architects of their own demise a bit. And he did run himself out in the end, which was unfortunate. But there were sort of two Pakistan innings there. There was the tempo that he'd set and it fell in a hole after he was out. And, of course, Mizbar then has to do the rescue mission and, you know, plays the most Mizbar knock of all time, which yes. was 56 off 86 as literally everyone fell around him. I think he was the eighth man out with the score at 218, which, you know, they added four from there. So yes. he didn't get much help once once Safraz was gone. And I thought that um, Afridi was particularly culpable, as he generally is. I think it was his 368th ODI innings and probably his 350th brainless you know, explosion. <laughs> do you think Misbah will ever get an ODI century? And if, if do you reckon if he gets into the late nineties at some point, he'll he'll just retire. He'll just retire out. He'll be like, no, nah, it's it would be too bittersweet if he ever actually broke that duck. He has been not out in the 90s once before. Um, and this is probably my favourite thing about Ms. Bailhark is that he has 42 half centuries in one day has never made 100. He tends to come in uh, a bit later in the innings. He tends to come in when things are collapsing and he has to do a shoring up job. But he's not a choker because uh, looking at his numbers, eight of his nine highest scores are not out. So he either runs out of batting partners, runs out of overs or runs out of runs to chase. Um, he doesn't get with inside of 100 and choke, but he's made a lot of 70s, 80s, 90s not out and, and just never quite got over the line. And I feel like it's a commitment to purity. You know, if you're, once you've got to 42 and none, it'd be a shame to make that sort of 45 and one by the end of a career. It'd just, just sort of mess it up. It's perfectly I, imperfect. I want 50 half centuries and no tons from Ms. Hark by the time he retires. And what you say too about that, you know, the, the running out of overs, I mean, one of the, if you could draw negatives from this game, as far as Pakistan are concerned, it was that they didn't bat out the overs, which is a cardinal sin against a South African attack where the fifth bowler, we've talked about it every week now, which in this instance was Dumini and um, de Villiers, yeah. went for between seven and ten and over each. And that's where you punish South Africa. So Waka was explicit in that in, yeah. in this game. He was, you know, we are setting out to target this this gap in the South African attack. I mean, it, it, Pakistan are always an interesting side to, to analyse because part of me always thinks that that when when something goes right for them, something has to have gone wrong for the opposition. And and South Africa are a perfect example of that. We, you know, they are struggling in run chases. It, it seems unfathomable considering how strong they're their batting order is but clearly there's a weakness there what's the um uh, one out of nine chasing 270 and three yes. out of 13 chasing 240 so part of me kind of thinks um you know it is as nice as it is to celebrate pakistan how much of, of the responsibility is actually south africa allowing pakistan to do that yeah well i mean i, I thought it was tremendous bowling particularly rahad ali was someone i really enjoyed watching bowl you know he he did a great job in that same test series, getting a lot of reverse swing on dry pitches in the Emirates, but it, but he used the New Zealand conditions really well, a lot of bounce and, and some movement, conventional movement, um, and was bowling very full and, and just asking a lot of questions. So I think you have to give a lot of credit to Pakistan's bowling attack in that particular match. But yeah, interesting you bring up South Africa because you know they made 411 against Ireland earlier in the week absolutely took them to the cleaners in in a way where you know that net run rate might still seal Ireland's fate thanks to that massive defeat um, and then you know they've they've collapsed chasing 220 in this game against Pakistan and haven't been able to get it done uh, 
are they are they just front runners? Well, I think one of the problems, and we've talked about this every week too, is that when the chips are down, it's normally Dubiny who who digs in and gets them out of trouble. He couldn't do that this time, and you've got Riley Rousseau and David Miller who look a million bucks against weak attacks. When you know there was that that game two games back where they they just went ballistic at the the end of the innings, as you say against Ireland, but. Um, there'd be concerns there not only with the, the depth of their bowling but with the depth of that batting down the order when the chips are down. And you wonder in a semi-final, in a knockout scenario, how much of a liability that's going to be. Hmm. So let's talk Ireland for a minute because they're related to Pakistan very closely in this World Cup. Um, as we're recording this, Ireland are playing India, so we won't know what the result of that match is um, <clears throat> to be able to speak about it today. But Pakistan play Ireland this coming Sunday, and if they lose to India, uh, then that game will effectively be a knockout for the quarterfinals. Ireland have already beaten two test sides in the West Indies and Zimbabwe so far this World Cup, but really because of this, the size of that hiding to South Africa and the fact that they only narrowly beat the UAE, they really have to win this game against Pakistan this Sunday to look like they're able to qualify. Um, what are their chances? I think their chances are good. I mean, if you, if you go through their side, they've got players in form in, in, in every aspect of the game. And, and in a Joyce, they've got someone who they can build in innings around either at whatever tempo the, the game will naturally settle into. And I, I think that's one of the great advantages that the Ireland have got. And we've seen it this this World Cup that there will tend to be one player around whom everybody else bats. And, and it's their responsibility to go on and make that big score. And, and Joyce, Joyce has done that so far. And, and his knock against Zimbabwe in particular was, was crucial. Um, I do worry about their bowling. I'm... I'm if Pakistan bat first and, and Ireland don't get off to a good start, I am a little bit worried that Pakistan could get a, a bit too far ahead. Um, but we've seen that this Ireland side fights. So you can put them in a, in a match play situation and back them to back themselves. So I guess it just depends where the game starts to, to reach its, you know, the, the tipping point. It was one of the games of the week, Russell, Ireland versus Zimbabwe. Ireland batting first, racking up 331, thanks to Joyce's century and Belburnie's 97. And then Zimbabwe very nearly chasing it, ending up five runs short of Ireland's total. And they looked like they were going to take it when Brendan Taylor and Sean Williams were cruising along, made 121 and 96 respectively. But the controversial dismissal uh, caught on the rope out there of Williams, where it looked like uh, John Mooney's foot may or may not have been touching the rope and it may or may not have been six. But if if you're looking at a win or a loss based on such a a small thing that could have gone either way. Um, I always feel like it's not necessarily right to complain about that. If, you, yeah. if you'd won the match by more, you know, if you'd, if you'd been more ahead in the match, you wouldn't have relied on such a line and ball call. Yeah. And they were at 74 for four. That's where the damage had been done. Um, and again, Taylor pulls it out of the fire. We were speaking before we came on about him potentially being the most underrated player of the tournament and, that continues to be the case. Williams, too, always seems to take wickets. And in this instance, it was a bit heartbreaking that he also didn't make it to his first ODI century. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, it was an unfortunate situation that they found themselves in that 
that position. I think they were perfectly capable of chasing that total. Um, but, yeah, I mean, 30 off the last three overs was what they needed when Williams got out. So it's arguably, you know, arguable that even with Kevin O'Brien bowling right-arm runs that they might not have got there. But he was, you know, as with every Island game, he was sort of a great story out of that. For me, I think he had, what was it? Two for 90 off Two 10. for 90 off, yeah, 10 overs. So there's always something happening when he's at the crease. And, um, yeah, he was brilliant again. Even when he was getting smashed, he was, you know, as angry and, and kind of, yeah, just just that sort of ridiculous fast bowler vibe that he has when he's not really a fast bowler. Yes, and he did end up taking the uh, the crucial wicket of Williams in the end. Controversially or not, it's in the book. Um, but, you know, you'd, you'd think... I mean, there'd, there'd be contingencies that in a World Cup where a, a lower-ranked team beating one test-ranked side would almost be enough to get them through the, to the quarterfinals. Ireland are going to have to beat three, it seems. So... A tough road for them, um, but it, we're really looking forward to this Sunday and seeing what happens in that particular game. That's gone! You're here on the Guardian World Cup podcast with Jeff Lemon, Russell Jackson and Jonathan Howcroft for the time being, and it's time to look at England versus Bangladesh. One of the stories of the tournament, uh, one of the games of the tournament, one of the... Uh, outpourings of online vitriol of the tournament as England were knocked out of the World Cup being defeated by Bangladesh on Monday evening as Bangladesh set them a target of 275 and then bowled them out. Uh, Not far short of it, but short enough of it to make sure that England are on an early flight home. And Jonathan, I don't know how to greet this. There's there's a certain amount of Schadenfreude from Australians. Obviously, we're too professional for that. But it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's it was yourself. A, it was a deeply frustrating day for England fans. But I I, I don't know. I, I almost don't know if they expect any differently now. The way I want to start this is by saying there is a misplaced perception that England are good and have been good at cricket. It's, right. It's not a game. Historically, England have been very good at. You think of the small number of countries that play cricket. England haven't won a World Cup. They haven't threatened. They haven't done anything in a World Cup since 1992. They struggle in in all limited overs forms of the game to remain either ahead of the curve or even within distance of the curve. And this is another good example that they they they're playing a different type of cricket to the rest of the world. And, and almost um, steadfast in their refusal to acknowledge that. We saw after the game, that, that after the defeat, Peter Moore's reference to, to data. It's like, it's not about data. It's about playing cricket. Yes, you well, can, the you key can, data being 260 to 275, ex- one of those numbers being bigger than the other. Ex- absolutely right. And, in you know, all of the kind of key areas that you look at in, in the way cricket's developed, scoring heavily off the top, consistent run scoring through your through kind of numbers three to eight and backing yourselves in you look at the way australia back themselves in all the way down the order bowlers who can bowl in the power plays and the death overs having a variety of your attack left arm this world cup being particularly important england have got none of that so the the fact that this is even a surprise is a surprise in itself because right. we should have seen it coming. Yeah, some there was some commentary around that that it didn't even really feel like an upset. No, um, but, but I mean Bangladesh as well. You have to give due credit to them because they looked so much more 
confident and competent at this level than they often have in the past. But doesn't that say something about England, that it takes playing against England for a side who'd been muddled, insipid against Sri Lanka at the MCG and at various points just looked disinterested and all of a sudden England made them look like world beaters, you know, and they felt like world beaters by the end of that game Mm. because there was almost an, an inevitability about it. Well, they've, I think they've won three of their last four one-dayers against England now. That's right, yeah. Um, they have, yeah. So, you know, there, there's growing confidence in, in the Bangladesh camp, which it's good to see for world cricket. But there, there's an absolute dearth of confidence in the England camp, which I think is really terrible for world cricket. And, Jonathan, watching the game yesterday, I, I felt like looking at the faces of most of the players, they just looked like they didn't want to be there. No. And they looked like they don't want to be playing one-day cricket. And maybe they don't. Which isn't entirely unreasonable, but maybe I, I almost wonder if England should should give away the format because it feels like they're playing it out of obligation. Well, we have to play 50-over cricket because that's one of the kinds of cricket that we have to play. But we're going to play it as quickly as possible, go home as soon as we can and not think about it anymore and, and get back to tests where which, we're comfortable. Which comes down to, to you know the great failure of this particular tournament in isolation, which is how strategic a failure it's been. They restructured, reordered the Ashes, They've pumped millions of pounds into the Lions tours, into uh, training facilities in Loughborough. They're as familiar with these conditions as any team outside Australia, the amount of time that they've they've spent in this part of the world. So they really have dotted the I's and crossed the T's of of this utter farce of of an experience, really. And I was chatting to somebody the other day about about coaching techniques and and the difference between being collaborative with your players and instructing your players to do a certain thing. And England's players are clearly terrified to do anything other than what they've been instructed to do. These are supposedly the best 11 cricketers in England. These aren't just guys that you've roped together to try and create a team to compete in some knockabout tournament. These are players who've spent 10, 15 years being the best at what they do. And they reach the pointy end of their careers and they've been shoehorned into certain specific roles which they're not suited to. And also, I think in this, there's a danger when you focus on the Moore's data comment. I mean, over the last five years, Australia have taken a far greater emphasis on on data themselves. So that alone is not the problem. Using data, I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of data that can help a cricket team. But the problem with England is that any individuality has been stifled in players. Yep. And there's this production line of fairly pedestrian cricketers, one-paced cricketers. And we've seen it, um, you know, Anderson and Broad are perhaps a different case because they've just bowled so many overs over the past couple of years and it's natural at some point that a fast bowler will lose his edge. And that that's what we're seeing with Anderson in this tournament. He hasn't swung the ball at all. Um, you know, him and Broad have looked like guys you can just milk for five and over and Wokes has looked like right arm runs every time he's bowled too. And there's this homogenised, you know, England, England cricketer, inverted commas, that comes out of this system and... You know, it's just a con- conveyor belt of, of mediocrity. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and you go across the World Cup and, and some of the plays that will determine the, the final result, Glenn Maxwell, for example, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't emerge through the England system. Lasith Malinga. Can you imagine Lasith Malinga going to Loughborough as an 18, 19 year old? I mean, he, he, he probably wouldn't ever play cricket again. He'd be an off spinner by now. <laughs> exactly. But he won't play international cricket. But 
the, there are, I, I guess, worrying questions about the the leading players in this as well. I mean, strategically, clearly, there are many issues, but Anderson and Broad haven't stood up with the ball. The captain hasn't stood up with the bat. Ian Bell, we've talked about earlier, you know, he makes these these pleasant 30s to 60s, but doesn't then go on and use, you know, cash in the balls that he's used to get there. You look at how they they had prepared this team over a number of years for it to be Alistair Cook's team, and then it wasn't Alistair Cook's team. They prepared it with Ravi Bapara being the crucial um, finisher and, and fifth, sixth bowler. And someone who has that ability to change up an innings exactly. very briskly with, with batter ball. And then, you know, Hales, Balance, Taylor come in and out the side. Ben Stokes didn't even make the journey. He's one of those players who his international record to that point didn't demand that he turned up. But when you're in a squad of 15 and you're looking for somebody to, to change the tempo of a tournament... He's one of the the few players that England have got at their disposal that could have done that. And there's an irony in the fact that for all their preparation and their planning and the data and the spreadsheets that England do in some senses look a muddled team as well. You've got a situation where Joss Butler is named vice-captain. No one knows about it for a while. And then they just go, oh, yeah, by the way, Joss Butler Informally. is, yeah. is um, our vice captain. Almost posthumously awarded yeah. um, by, by a word in the ear of someone in the press box by the England media manager. Oh, by the way, he's the vice captain and has been for several matches. Oh, good to know. And so he's entrusted to be the vice captain of his country. He's clearly, at the moment, England's most dynamic batsman. And he's batting at seven and usually coming in at about 120 for five. Now, he needed in this tournament, if you ask me, he needed to face far more balls than he has. And what is it about England that they're so rooted in that sort of old-fashioned thinking that just even down to that simple thing that, oh, he's our wicketkeeper, so he bats at seven. Well, right at the moment, the way England are playing, Joss Butler should be arguably at four or five. But the point being that everybody should have batted like Joss Butler, with the exception of perhaps Ian Bell, who plays the the Michael Clark, Hashim Amla kind of a role, right. everybody else should have batted with the purpose, the, the kind of intensity and purpose of, of Joss Butler. And and I think the point that you made there, Russell, is is one that I, I agree with. And the next question logically is, well, then what do you do? You know, what, what, what does the future look like? And do you have an Argus review kind of a process like, like Australia had? Or, and, and this would be my favourite route, would be, you go down more of a warning festo. So if you think about how Australian cricket kind of coalesced around the Argus review, which didn't really achieve as much as people thought at the time, it was, it was kind of death by committee. And Shane Warne writes a, a couple of blog posts about, all right, I want buffers, Darren Lehman as, as coach, and I want these match winners in my team. It was basically a list of Warney's mates. It, well, of course it was. Of course <laughs> list it was. of demands. Um, but if, <laughs> he, if you cut out letters from magazines and pasted them It was them basically on a, a list that said, these are people who still talk to Shane Warne. But, but if you look at the narrative of, of Australian cricket, from Ian Chappell through Warne to Clark. There's a there's a there's a theme there. There's a there's a seam that that you can mine. England cricket doesn't have that. It has structure. It has um, county committees. It, it, ha- it has joylessness. Exactly. And, and I think this is something that uh, Russell. I know at least you and I have recently read Daniel Bredig's 
book Whitewash to Whitewash, which is about exactly that period in Australian cricket when the Argus Review um, came through and Australian cricket was in the doldrums. And what really came through from reading that book was just how unhappy most Australian cricketers were during that three or four years when things were awful. They were having a horrible time being in the team. You get the feeling that's a a big reason why Michael Hussey retired because it was just miserable being an Australian cricketer at the time. No one was enjoying it. And that's absolutely the sense you get, you know, emanating from, from the England camp so strongly you can almost see the the stink lines saying we don't want to be here we're having a crap time none of us are enjoying ourselves none of us are enjoying our cricket we're we're constrained we're worried we're anxious and and we've got the press on our backs and everything's awful four years ago when when you deconstruct in the previous world cup you'd have said well england will go into into 2015 in good spirits because they'll have kevin peterson one of the best one-day batsmen in the world jonathan trott one of the best anchors in the world Graham Swan, one of the best um, off-spinners in the world. You know, you go through it all and all right, for, for, for various reasons, but for, for largely the point that you made, that there wasn't an incentive, enough of an incentive for them to make it work to, to get to this point. But also in that intervening time between those two World Cups, it's easy to point to England's terrible record in ODIs, but there have been periods of time... Stokes was out of form when they picked the squad sure. and they couldn't have yeah. picked him, but there have been times where Stokes, Hales, Butler have all looked dynamic players, and that's what England lacks at the moment is any second gear that they that they lifted up a notch. Just as, you know, when Australia were batting the other day, um, you know, Smith and Clark consolidated, and then you knew that when... Maxwell came in and when Watson came in and if Haddon was required that they'd blast away for the last 20 overs and you never really get that feeling with England that they've got another gear to go up. It's like, oh, you know, it's almost damage limitations. And the counterbalance to that, once you realise that they're not going to blow sides away either with bat or ball, you think, well, okay, well, they might have the nous, they might have the experience, the the one-day specialist who can just nerdle their way through a tournament. Which should have been Morgan. Well, it should have been Morgan and and James Treadwell, who I would have picked as a as as my fourth or fifth bowler in every match. I I, I wouldn't have cared what the conditions were. I would back him to bowl ten 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 overs, one for fifty every game ahead of the the unpredictability of what you're going to get from Jordan or Finn. Is, is that third, fourth seamer. Yeah, well, we should also look at Bangladesh, um, given that they were the ones who actually beat England. And I think they, you know, as you said, they looked awful against Sri Lanka in their, uh, a couple of games ago. They, they got their confidence back against Scotland. Scotland, unlucky really, set them 318, thanks to that uh, magnificent 156 by Kyle Kurtzer. But the Bangladeshis had a real team effort chasing that one down. Tamim making 95, Mahmoudullah 62, Mushfakir 60, Shakib al-Hassan 52, Sabia Rahman 42. And I felt like that's really where they got going. Uh, most of their top order had contributed. And so in this match, Mahmoudullah made their first World Cup century, 103 against England. Mushfakir made 89. He's been in terrific form as well, the wicketkeeper. And they set 275, which is always going to be a challenging total, but... More to the point, they defended it with, with aplomb. And there was that moment late in the match when Tommy McBale dropped Chris Wokes at long on and you thought maybe they were Bangladesh were going to um, muff this one. But Rubel Hussain came back, fast-swinging Yorkers um, at the stumps in the last couple of overs and knocked over the last two wickets and took them home. So a, a really polished all-round performance from Bangladesh. It was. And talking about um, Safraz being a barometer 
for Pakistan, I think we've maybe underestimated Mushfika in that sense that, um, you know, he's been... It's not only the runs that he's made, Mushfika, it's his attitude. And a lot of people don't like how combative he is and um, there's some questionable things he does sometimes. He'll almost demolish the stumps when he takes the bales off just to make a point. But it's almost like you get it, a team gets an attitude from its wicketkeeper a lot of the time. And I think he's sort of, he's filled the space in that lineup that some of the anonymity of the other players have, have created. And that's, that's as far as players giving Bangladesh a momentum, I feel like that's been him throughout the tournament that um, Mushraf kind of battles on and he's this sort of beleaguered figure and you feel a bit sorry for him sometimes. But Mushfika is, you know, the spunk of the team, if you will. How good was Ribble Hussain closing the game out as well? I mean, it feels like that the, the, the fast-swinging Yorker will be the, the defining delivery of this World Cup. You think of Bolt, you think of... Um, Mitchell Stark in particular, but the way Rubel Hussain just closed that game out against a pair of England tailenders who just did not want to be there. It was such a, a nice encapsulation of the difference between the two teams. Here's a guy who's bowling quicker than England's two bowlers that, that, that he's bowling at and completely destroys both of, both of them for skill. You know, the, the way you hit the top of off for, for Stuart Broad and then just cleaned up James Anderson it was terrific fast bowling. And you think how many times in an international match would a Bangladeshi fast bowler be the fastest compared to, to a, a, an established test nation? It's uh, great for Bangladesh, but, you know, an indictment on, on where England are at. That's gone! You are on the Guardian World Cup podcast. Jeff Lemon and Russell Jackson here with you. And joining us down the line from Sri Lanka, we have one of the great men of Sri Lankan cricket broadcasting, Roshan Abasinga. Roshan, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. And quite a contest that we saw between Australia and Sri Lanka on the weekend. Australia blazing away to that 370-plus total. But then for a lot of the night, Sri Lanka looked like they were on track to chase it down. And by about the 40th over, they needed 105 off the last 10. And, and we thought at this end that they could be in with a real chance. Was there a sense of belief at your end? Well... What I thought was uh, there was definitely a chance, as, as you said, but it, it was a tough one because uh, one thing is uh, Sri Lanka was up against some very fine bowling, particularly Mitchell Stark had a few overs up his sleeve, and uh, also Faulkner was bowling well. So it was it was kind of a tough, tough call for Sri Lanka, 100 runs of, uh, or a little bit more than 100 of the last in overs uh, with uh, six tickets in hand, uh, of course, Chandimal and uh, Matthews in and in looking good. Well, as Sri Lankans, we would have wanted to believe that they could have got there. But in reality, I think it was a tough call. Certainly. But there must be a, a, a sense of encouragement and, and, and some optimism with the way Sri Lanka's been playing through this tournament. You know, they had a, a poor opening match against New Zealand, but since then they've been racking up huge totals and, and losing few wickets in the process. Um, against Bangladesh uh, with that 300-plus total, again making 300-plus against Australia in that chase. Um, they, you get the feeling that, particularly with Kumar Sangakkara in the form that he's in, but the whole top order making runs, these guys can, can chase almost anything put in front of them. Uh, yes, uh, you're right. And, and one thing that uh, I wanted to see after 
Sri Lanka had to get 376 was a good, good chair. Uh, even, even if they fell short, which they did eventually, uh, I wanted to see them not lose badly. And, and that I think they did very well and uh, their confidence level is uh, quite high. And uh, they, they definitely would have told themselves that they, they gave the Aussies a good fight. And yes, the top order is firing, but uh, there's also injury worries now with Chadimal uh, having this hamstring and uh, uh, still not sure whether he will take part in, in the quarterfinal and not sure how, how fast Rangana Herat is recovering. So those are few concerns, but... Uh, Sri Lanka getting to that, yes, it's good. Roshan, just saying that about the bowling and the potential absence of Harath, how much of a concern is that, that uh, the Sri Lankan bowling is probably the weakness at the moment and, and it feels from an outsider's perspective as though that potential loss of Harath is is the thing that will really hold them back in a final scenario, not just, just lacking that bowling quality? Well, honestly... Uh I wouldn't want to call them weak, but I think they're average. They are not, uh, you know, don't seem to be capable of getting batsmen out. Don't seem to be capable of keeping batsmen down. But particularly in the Australian game, I thought they made a mistake. And the mistake was uh, not to play the extra bowler. They went with uh, two spinners, two frontline spinners and uh, was expecting Dilshan to bowl a few overs. but And they also played the extra batsman, which I thought was a big mistake. Because Upul Taranga, the extra batsman, came into bat quite late. And uh, I thought that was a waste. And Sri Lanka should have looked at playing the extra bowler. It was also interesting that Angelo Matthews chose to keep bowling Prasanna, the, the leg spinner, when Glenn Maxwell had really got after him. And he looked vulnerable against that attacking Australian pair of Maxwell and Watson. Um, he he had to keep coming back to the crease, but he, he kept going over the mid-wicket boundary as well. Yeah, it, it happened because uh, what happened was, in my opinion, Matthews had no option because uh, Lassit Marlinger was his go-to bowler. But the point was, Marlinger had to bowl at the start. He had to bowl in the power plays. He had to bowl in the depth. So... And he also had only 10 overs. So it was not, not possible for Marlinger to do all that. So the next best was he had to try the bowler that looked, uh, what should I say? I mean, I would not, not a bowler that looked good, but the bowler that had showed some potential or, or some, some promise because Tishara Pereira bowled badly. He, he went for a lot of runs. Angelo Matthews was taken apart. Sachsena Nayaka was taken apart. So, he had to he had to try something different and Prasanna also was predictable because he was he doesn't turn the ball. He's somebody who fires the ball in, bowls wicket to wicket. But you know, the issue is that Sri Lanka did not have a wicket taking bowler after Malinga uh, in, in that game. So uh, once again I like to reiterate the fact that the Sri Lankan selection policy seemed to be wrong by playing that extra batsman and that's why they had, he had to go for go to a spinner. So I would have uh, played uh, the young quickie Dushmanta Shamira, you know, who's hardly known, uh, uh, you know, as far as uh, his cricket is concerned. He can bowl quite quickly. He could have been used as a surprise uh, weapon um, in this game against Australia. Well, thrown into the deep end. Who knows? I mean, if he had, uh, you know, got a wicket or two, 
and kept Australia down to about 330 in hindsight. You and I will agree that 330 was a gettable score. And I think you're right there. There was something almost defeatist about picking the extra batsman. It was sending out a signal to say, we know we're going, if we're chasing, we know we're going to be chasing a big total. Um, and it was almost like you said, they, they sacrificed that potential bowling threat and just picked the extra batsman knowing, hey, Sangakara is in blinding form. Um, we're, we're backing him in and a few of these other guys in to make the runs. And, you know, even in the form he's in, he just couldn't quite do it. Well, if Sangakara, as we all know, is in that form and the top order is firing, why do you need an extra batsman? I mean, we can debate this. Why do you need an extra batsman? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, that means you're not trusting your top order. I mean, you, you're going to say that, uh, okay, I, I'm not sure, so I'll, I'll have a fallback option. But on the contrary, if we went the other way, as we've been, as I've been trying to emphasize, play the six batsmen, trust the all-rounders, and try and use two bowlers who could have got you wickets. Interesting to think just how crucial Rangana Herath could be. Um, Matai Muralitharan said that he expected Herath would make it back for the quarterfinals in that the, the finger injury he had, you know, he could probably play with that injury. It, it would just be uncomfortable. Um, but Herath, is, he's, he's been such a great bowler for Sri Lanka the last few years and he's someone who's really been quite under the radar as far as world cricket's concerned. You know, he's, he's not an intimidating physical presence. He doesn't necessarily look like an elite athlete, but he's such a, a wonderful bowler, has such wonderful control of the ball. And for me, his, his spell in the World T20 against New Zealand when he took those six wickets was probably the best spell of limited overs bowling I've ever seen. He completely turned that match. So uh, it, it's interesting to think that a bowler who doesn't necessarily have this reputation as being a fearsome uh, opponent could actually be the real key for Sri Lanka to support Malinga in having two wicket-taking threats in the attack as they move into the quarterfinals. Well, what you need to look at is what Rangana is capable of. His strength is, his virtues are his line, line and length. He is somebody who has played a lot of cricket, doesn't get ruffled, and despite a batsman looking to attack him, he could just carry on bowling that line and length with couple variances. And now that, I think, is his strength. So you needed experience. Now, you know, in World Cup cricket, and when you're up against good teams, you need people, you need players who are experienced, who know how to absorb the pressure, who knows how to absorb situations. So Rangana Herath has that experience by playing over a long period of time. Uh, he hasn't played too many games of one-day cricket, but he's played enough cricket to understand what the pressure is. Uh, so, but on the other hand, if you look at Prasanna, he, uh, he, he, he was playing his first World Cup game. Sajid Prasanna coming back after remodeling his action, hadn't played a game in the World Cup, so... Uh, that's why I think Rangan Herat becomes a, such a uh, key player. And, and don't forget, he's a left-arm spinner who spins the ball across a right-handed batsman. And also, he could bowl the ball and surprise the left-hander. So he's got a few up his sleeve. And with his experience, uh, he will. I mean, be, as you said, he's, he's not somebody who's, uh, whose presence would intimidate the opponents, because anyway, he's a left-arm spinner, he's not a fast bowler, but it's the skill that he brings into his game and, and the skill that he brings into the Sri Lankan team that really can make him the bowler that we all know he is. So that's why I think uh, that Rangana Herat's presence 
as a player in the Sri Lankan team is going to be useful because he can get you a wicket, he can get you two wickets, but more importantly, he can he can ensure that there is some control out there in the balls. Roshan, I wanted to talk to you particularly today about Kumar Sangakkara. Now, obviously, he's in brilliant form in this World Cup. He's been in, in brilliant form the last couple of months. Um, only only late last year, he had 19 one-day centuries to his name. Now he has 24. So he's, he's scored five in the last couple of months. He's scored three in a row at this World Cup. He's been in sensational form. And as far as we know, he has four matches left in his uh, one-day international career. He said he's retiring at the end of this World Cup. The the only players ahead of him on the century makers list in one day cricket are Jaya Surya, Ponting, and and uh, Tendulkar. So he's you know he's he's just hitting new heights. He looks magnificent. He scored the the two fastest centuries of his one day career in within those last couple of games, and his innings against Australia against some quality bowling was was nothing short of magnificent. What is the feeling back in Sri Lanka at? knowing that this absolute champion of Sri Lankan cricket is is soon to disappear from the one-day arena? Well, when Kumar Sankara was and Mahela Javadana announced their retirement, in case of Mahela Javadana, I think, well, he, he was all right to go because he, he had his injury issues and, and he was not, uh, you know, doing anything special. He was just carrying on the way we all knew. But in the case of Sankara, I think his decision has been you know, summed up by, I, I, I read a tweet by Ashley Giles, the former England left-arm spinner. He said, I mean, it's good to go uh, when you're doing well or, or when you're in your prime, but it is madness to go when you're getting better by the day. So now that's the situation with Sangakara. I mean, uh, uh, it, it's a shame that he's decided to hang his boots up. But at 37 and and... And what I think is, is uh, great about Sangakara, besides his batting, is uh, to know exactly when to go. You know, because lots of greats who's achieved greatness uh, really couldn't make up their mind uh, when to go. I, I know, I, I mean, I don't have to mention names, but there were a few top cricketers who, who got, got that timing mixed up. And in the end, they, they had to leave, uh, you know, as very average players and... and uh, supporters, uh, fans, and everybody else was asking, why aren't this guy going? But Sangakkara, on the other hand, is going at a time when people are asking why. So that is going to be a massive issue. Losing him is definitely an issue. But when it comes to T20 cricket, I think a side can always uh, you know, try and uh, cover his uh, absence because it's such a short game. But uh, one-day cricket, uh, you know, he's batting at three, and one-day cricket today looks so long and looks looks a very long game. And in, in that game particularly, uh, Kumar Sangakkara's absence is going to create a massive vacuum. And thankfully, he hasn't still uh, announced his retirement from Test cricket. And we're kind of hoping that he will at least carry on for another two years until uh, maybe one of the two, one of the uh, or few youngsters uh, in the Sri Lankan side. Uh, really find their feet. I did read some suggestion from him that he might be looking at the series in July and August this year as, as his last tests, but I'm not sure if that's been completely confirmed yet. But as you said, he does seem to be getting better uh, by the year. This is probably his his best year or two in all forms of cricket. Is there any chance that he might have a change of heart given how well he's been playing? Well, uh, what 
all of us might be expecting is that, uh, that he will have a change of heart. But uh, uh, reading through what he's done, uh, I mean, these cricketers, these guys, are, you know, once they make up their mind, they go with it. They're not, uh, they, they don't waver about their decisions. They, they make their decision at the right time and they stand by their decision. So it's very, very unlikely that there could be a change of heart. What we hope now is to try and get the best of Sangakara when he's available. And uh, what we should hope and what we should try and push for is a few more years of test cricket at least. Because test cricket to me is is very, very demanding. And uh, you take Jawadhan out, you take Sangakara out, there is, and there is no Dilshan at the top. So it's going to be a completely new, inexperienced Sri Lankan batting lineup with uh, Angelo Matthews as captain, the only only person who will, uh, you know, have some experience, stature, and class, with the others promising, uh, the likes of Tiriman. But uh, with, with those three players not there, it's going to be uh, a tough call for Sri Lanka. They got to rebuild altogether. So we are hoping that Sangakara will kind of decide to stay considering the situation of Sri Lanka cricket at least for another year if not two. And finally Roshan I've heard a lot of people saying Sri Lanka are dark horses to you know to challenge for this World Cup title which seems ridiculous since they've made the last two World Cup finals and the last three T20 World Cup finals to me it seems more likely that they should be uh, they should be regarded as being a bigger chance than that. How do you feel? Are you confident about Sri Lanka's chances going uh, going forward into this tournament? Well, uh, Sri Lanka should be considered as front runners. You know, I I, I really don't know whether they can be called favourite, <clears throat> particularly when you look at the way Australia is playing and New Zealand is playing. But uh, you can't rule out Sri Lanka because on their day they can be a very fine side. I mean, I still believe that had Sri Lanka played that extra bowler. They had two op- two openings, you know, when they first had two quick wickets up the order and when uh, Smith and Clark was going well uh, again in that Australian innings and they both were dismissed. Sri Lanka had an opportunity to get in had they had the right combination. So I wouldn't want to call them favourites, but I would think that they're frontrunners and they're right up there with the rest of the world. And um, if, if, they, if they get through the quarterfinals, which at this stage could be either Pakistan or West Indies, well, Pakistan or South Africa, I beg your pardon. Well, from semi-final onwards, I think it's anybody's game, and and on your day you can be the best. You can beat the best side. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't in any way want to think any, anything different other than Sri Lanka going on to win. They need to get through the quarterfinals. Quarterfinals is the key. After playing uh, that uh, first round, quarterfinals, the sudden death where you know you lose your out. If you get through that first game where you know what it is, then from there on, I believe Sri Lanka's chances will be as good as anybody. Fantastic. Well, Roshan, great to speak to you and thanks for joining us today. We'll look forward to seeing how that all pans out. Indeed, and uh, it was my pleasure talking to both of you, uh, Jeff and Russell. Thanks for the opportunity. That's gone! You are on the Guardian World Cup podcast with Jeff Lemon, Jonathan Howcroft and Russell Jackson. Let's just take a glance ahead. Now, Bangladesh will be taking on New Zealand, but they've uh, Bangladesh have already qualified. They don't need to win that game. But New Zealand, you know, while they've won every game so far, they've generally looked a bit shaky in uh, chasing the small totals that their bowlers give them to run down. They, looked, uh, they, they weren't entirely convincing against Afghanistan last outing, um, although they did get home. 
but you know, a, a Bangladesh a chance to to take a bit of momentum from this and and maybe challenge the Kiwis, and more importantly, are they then a chance to go on and challenge? They're likely to face India in the quarterfinals um, at the MCG. Yeah, I have my doubts that that they've got much more in them than than just you know making up the numbers in the quarterfinals. But just back to New Zealand, an unfortunate thing for them in their draw so far has been basically the way that the toss has gone and also in some senses how well they've bowled because they've, they haven't really had a proper hit out with the bat. Um, and again, that was the case Afghanistan sort of clawed their way to 186 and then Guptal and McCullum, who are both in pretty good form, get their bat, um, get 57 and 42, Williamson 33, he's not a problem, but Someone like Ross Taylor, who ended up 24 not out when they knocked off the total, that was his first, he's been out of form, that was his first sort of hit. And really, I think New Zealand would have been hoping against all hope that that they won the toss and got to bat in that game. And they'll probably view it as a bit of a um, lost opportunity for for centre wicket practice with no disrespect to Afghanistan. But um, that's the problem for them, I think heading forward New Zealand is that they just haven't had that hit out with the bat. If we look at Afghanistan, they're taking on England next up and it it confronts you with this confusing dilemma of whether it would be more embarrassing for England to sort of have the token win against Afghanistan at the end of the tournament and that means nothing and and will will really give them no joy or lose to Afghanistan and and complete almost a clean sweep in this uh, pool stage and whether Afghanistan will, you know, I think they will. They've been very confident throughout the tournament and even before the tournament, they said we've identified the England game as one that we think we can win, um, which which was great candor from them. And, you know, they'll be feeling even more confident now. And they will. I hope they do come out with that attitude as well and, and, and take it as a head-to-head rather than a, a, a minnow against a, a major side. I do worry that they that they might be tiring, though. It, it does feel like they they the the energy has been sucked out of them game after game with with the duration of the tournament and the travel and whatnot. So I think from an England perspective, they are getting Afghanistan at, at, at the best time this tournament. But there's absolutely no reason on a on a skills that we've seen displayed this tournament that England should go in heavy favourites by no means. Yeah, and that, that's as you say, the schedule has sort of worked against Afghanistan in that sense that their, their travel schedule has been so brutal and there are signs that particularly the bowlers are, are, um, are struggling to come up. So it's a shame that we couldn't see Afghanistan potentially running through the England top order because they're perfectly capable of it. There was a quite amusing moment a couple of weeks back when Lahiro um, Tiramani from uh, Sri Lanka was asked, is the Afghanistan bowling attack stronger than the England bowling attack? And before he answered, he paused for about five seconds. And that, that pause sort of said a lot about <laughs> um, this bowling attack. So I think Afghanistan go into every game thinking they're a chance to, to do damage. Mm. And, and this will be their last match. Last you know, They'll, yeah. they'll, they'll it, go into it. And it will be good that they're not at the 2019 World Cup as well, or, or, or the chances of them being at the 2019 World Cup are diminished. It's good that we will have the eight strongest nations and a couple of made, a couple of other teams making up the numbers. <laughs> um, I think we should look very briefly because we're we're getting short on time at India 
India versus the West Indies was an interesting one because uh, it really rammed home how well India have bowled in this tournament and they're, they're not known for it. No one talks about their bowlers. I think they're the only side to take all 40 wickets across the four games that they've played thus far, um, not including the one they're playing currently. And the interesting thing being they've, they've used seven bowlers. Um, all of them have returned exceptional figures. All of their bowlers uh, are averaging somewhere between 11 and 24 runs per wicket and their economy rates, no one's going at more than four and a half and over and several of them are under four and over. Um, how surprising is this and, and is this the, the key to the puzzle? I think it's, it's surprising because we've seen India in Australia so often recently and, and, and they've shown nothing. And they they look they looked ill suited to Australian conditions. The the length required for Australian pitches, but I think we've seen since the World Cup started that they've got that bang on. And in particular, Mohammed Shami, that 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 length that you need in this World Cup to prevent batsmen from just rocking back and and hitting through the line, is is what he's been able to bowl particularly. And I think. Um, Ravi Chandran Ashwin is a potential World Cup winner. I don't think there's anybody in this tournament that has his ability that that's been backed. You, you look at the bowlers that aren't here in in um, in Narain, um and Said Ajmal. Said Ajmal, exactly. So I think um, Ravi Chandran Ashwin has an opportunity to be the defining spinner in the knockout stages and. And the form that he's shown going into it, I think he could be key for for India. And it shows what a massive thing having that really good spinner is. I mean, uh, one positive New Zealand can take is that Daniel Vittori has returned to form in such grand style. He had four for 18 off 10 in that over, and that gives an entirely new dimension to a bowling attack, um, just as Ashwin does for India, that... All of the destruction we've seen in this World Cup from a batting point of view has generally come from the the pedestrian medium paces being punished yeah. um, and part time spinners and it shows yeah what it shows what an asset um, Ashwin is, but also that um, as you say that the the pacemen have stepped up a gear in this um, in this tournament so far Mohit Sharma has added a dimension to India. Um, Shami is a different bowler in one day as than than what we saw certainly in the test. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that, that it's a weird situation that you're almost confident in India's ODI bowling at the moment. And you know that could really take them a lot deeper than we might have thought a few weeks ago. And to wrap things up here with the look ahead, uh, the United Arab Emirates have a couple of tough games coming up. Firstly, against South Africa on Thursday, and then they'll take on the West Indies on Sunday. You wouldn't necessarily tip them for a win in either of those, but I've very much enjoyed watching the UAE play in this World Cup, and particularly Shaiman Anwar. He's in the top 10 run scorers in the tournament as of now, um, and he's done that from four innings, when everyone else above him has had five innings. And he's also, he and, and Brendan Taylor are the only two to not have recorded a failure, you know, it's a low score in any of their innings so far. He's he's made 67 against Zimbabwe, 106 against Ireland, 35 against India, 62 against Pakistan. So that's my uh, my great hope for the week is that Shaman Anwar keeps up that runner form and I want to see him blaze through to the end of the World Cup in glory. And that has been the Guardian World Cup podcast for today. Thanks to all of our guests and we will be back next week as we continue to keep tabs on everything that happens throughout this Cricket World Cup. Thanks to you for joining us and once again, see you next time. For more great downloads go to theguardian.com slash audio.